say, uh, Linz is going to be uh, speaking this morning, so let's pray as we uh, hear from her and God's word. Father, we thank you for your presence amongst us. We thank you for your word, for the way that your word transforms and changes our lives. We pray for Linz as she shares what your word has meant to her uh, in these recent months and years. We pray that you'd speak to us afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen. Take this one. (laughs) Thank you. Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? That was that one. I'd just like to start by saying thank you to Carl for the title that he gave me, Job the Depressed Worshipper. It's a good one for my first starting out here. But despite that title, I wish I was a little bit more like Job, which might be a bit of a strange opening line, especially if you know the book of Job well. But for me, he's a great man of faith. But I'm definitely not asking to be covered head to toe in sores or for my entire family to be wiped out. My walk with God tends to sound a bit more like this. If you could just do this for me, then I'll do what you ask of me. Or I like to give God a list of tasks that I'd like him to complete and normally a deadline by which I'd also like them done. Faith and patience are not my strongest skills. It's not always about the relationship, but what I think that God can do for me. And in our readings, we meet Job, who, as we can see, is not having the best of times. In the first reading, he seems to be pretty broken. In chapter one, he's already lost his oxen, donkeys, some servants, some sheep, some more servants, camels, a few more servants, and then finally his children. In chapter two, he's covered in loathsome sores from head to foot. I don't think that I could withstand that amount of suffering and not point the finger at God. Yet Job neither sins nor charges God with his suffering. He's a man who knows God. They have a relationship. Not just when life is good, but also when evil comes to his household. Job knows the power and awe of God. He's able to tell his friends exactly who God is, the very nature of him. That doesn't come from a once a week check-in in church on a Sunday, but from a daily narrative between the two. We live in a society where talking about suffering or our struggles is not popular. Social media is fast-paced, and we all like to post up the pictures or statuses of how well things are going. And if we're honest, it makes us uncomfortable to read about people's difficulties, especially when they are ongoing. Yet for me, that's exactly what Job is about. Sacrifice, sweat, and suffering. He doesn't get a quick fix. For him, change and restoration isn't overnight. There is suffering and hardship and loss before change occurs. For how many of us is that also true? I know for me it is. As Christians, we love the faith-building testimonies of healing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I believe there is also great power in the stories of people's continued faith when their prayers go seemingly unanswered. And as a Christian who's been through depression myself, I have found some of the following deeply painful. True believers do not suffer from depression, and they definitely don't take medication. Depression is a sign of spiritual weakness and a lack of faith. Depression can be prayed away, and it shouldn't be talked about in church. 
Here we are. The fact is that one in four has or will experience some form of depression in their lives. That's more than likely somebody in your family, somebody you see at church. Yet Christians are all too quick to put their head in the sand and believe that anxiety, anger, depression, and mental illness do not affect us. These are subjects that don't get talked about enough, despite the fact that depression is a theme of the Bible. Job, Elijah, Daniel, Psalm 22, for just a few. What we should be doing is standing together and recognize that these things are in our churches and affect our communities. I don't know if you feel like me after reading the Job passage, but it feels like a passage considerably lacking in hope. Job's a man who's lost everything. His livestock, his family, seven sons and three daughters. He's lost his home, his servants and his health. It was common Old Testament belief that righteous people would always prosper materially. The problem with this theology is that it can also induce false doubt and accusations when prosperity does not come. Job's friends believed that his troubles stood as evidence against him and that his suffering was punishment for his sin. Yet the very first chapter, we are told that Job is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The book of Job looks at a man who suffered because he was blameless. In verse 11, Satan argues that Job's got no reason to doubt God. He lives a blessed life, and if God took it all away, surely Job would curse God's name. And God allows Satan to stretch out his hand against Job's possessions. Yet he doesn't curse God. He falls to his knees and praises God. He never blames God for his suffering. Can we say our response is the same? From personal experience, it's not been mine. I've been very quick to point the finger at God. I've blamed him for resenting me and for not rescuing me. So seeing that he has failed, Satan challenges God again, saying, all that a man has, he will give his life for. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and surely he will curse you. And again, God allows it. Still, Job does not curse God, saying, should we only accept good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Towards the end of chapter 2, we meet Job's three friends, and to start with, they seem like the kind of friends you'd want to have around when you're at your lowest. They came to show Job comfort and sympathy. They wept for him and sat on the ground with him, and no one spoke a word. This is a Jewish tradition of sit shiva. Be careful how I say that. To sit silently with someone in his or her grief. It literally means to sit with someone in mourning for seven days. In Job 3, 1 to 13, he laments of his circumstance and questions his being, but he does not doubt who God is or his goodness. If we think that God is the source of our pain and suffering, then he cannot also be the resource of our healing. Job's reactions are normal. He doesn't stand like a rock in reverent stoicism as though he were unaffected by his trials. Neither does he trumpet heroic defiance of his troubles as though they could never get him down. He reacts in a natural human way. He rages, protests, moans and wavers between confidence and despair, but he never gives up. He does not curse God 
and does not make a false confession of guilt in the hope that God will let up on him. Although Job could not understand his situation, he knows the answer is found in God. Job 38, 1-16, we see that God does not answer Job's complaints, but he reminds Job of who he is. Job questions God, but God did not give him answers. Instead, God confronted him, changed his perspective, and then blessed him. Job acknowledges that he does not have the right to question God. And we have a choice. We can either lie down and give up. So if I lie down here now, I'm very limited in what I can see and how my body can move. I can't see the way out of the church. I can't see any windows. But if I get up, I have a clear view and I can see the way out. I can turn my head and see my options. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and behold, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In times of suffering, it can feel hard to keep on going, but all God asks of us is to stand. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 says, Stand firm in the faith. Galatians 5 verse 1, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. All we have to do is stand. And there are similarities between the Job passage and that of Elijah in Kings. Elijah was a man of God who performed miracles, yet he was taken to the depths of despair. He was isolated and suicidal, yet God still used him. God doesn't condemn Elijah. He meets him in practical ways. He met his physical and spiritual needs. I don't know about you, but I often think that I have to be perfect in order to be used by God. Yet God made me to be me, and you to be you. There will be things that each of us can do that the other cannot. I read a really nice quote recently, which said, You are unique, and if that's not fulfilled, then something has been lost. God created us in order to have relationship with him, not because he needed us to do stuff for him. I heard a really nice story of a cracked pot I can tell it to you. In India, there was a water bearer. He had two large pots hanging on each side of a pole, which he used to carry on his shoulders. One of the pots had a small crack, and by the time the water bearer had walked from the stream to the master's house, the pot was half empty, while the other pot was perfect, and a full portion of water was delivered at the end of the walk. The water bearer used the same pots for two years, This made the perfect pot proud of its accomplishment, but the cracked pot was ashamed of its imperfection and felt miserable. The cracked pot felt like a failure as it was not able to deliver a full portion of water. One day the cracked pot said to the water bearer, I'm sorry, I want to apologize to you. The water bearer asked, what are you apologizing for? The pot replied, because of me, you do not get full value for your work. You work so hard, and because of the crack inside me, half of my water leaks out on the way to the master's house. After listening to this, the water bearer felt sorry for the crack pot and replied with compassion. On the way back home, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. The crack pot did indeed notice the beautiful flowers, but still it was sad. On reaching home, the water bearer said to the pot, Did you notice that the flowers were only on your side of the path, not on the other? 
have known about your flaw all along, so I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and for two years you have been watering them. Without you being the way that you are, I would not have been able to collect all those beautiful flowers. Each of us has our own unique flaws. We're all cracked pots. But if we will allow it, God will use our flaws to grace his Father's table. In God's great economy, nothing goes to waste. So, as we seek to minister to God, minister together, and as God calls you to tasks he's appointed you, don't be afraid of your flaws. It's the gospel that sets us free to expose our mess to others. Romans 12, 2 says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. God is sometimes more concerned in changing our minds than our circumstance. It's the renewing of the mind which brings transformation. We need to feed our minds with biblical truth. Matthew 4 verse 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 119 verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. It speaks of a daily discipline of biblical meditation. Rick Warren said, if you know how to worry, then you know how to meditate on God's word. We also need to free our minds from destructive thoughts. Just because we think something does not make it true. When we believe a lie, we empower the liar, and Satan is the master of lies. He drip feeds them to you, nice small ones at first. You don't look very nice. Did a rubbish job with your kids today. And then moves on to them slightly larger. No one likes you. Why would God use you? You can't trust God. God is mean. God shows us how to change through the truth in the Bible. And then his spirit within us gives us the power to change. But if we ignore these, God will gladly use our circumstances to get our attention. God loves us however we are but he loves us too much to let us stay where we are. And he will use whatever it takes to help us grow to spiritual maturity. So God's responsibility is to provide life-changing truth, Holy Spirit power, and custom-made experience to help us change and grow. But we also have responsibilities in our growth. We cannot sit passively doing nothing and expect our lives to change. We have a choice to use the resources that God has given us. There are three spiritual habits which we must develop, if, which will de deepen our faith and de develop spiritual strength. We must choose to fill our minds with God's word every day. We must depend on God's spirit for every moment rather than our own. And we must choose to trust God in every circumstance. Changing your thinking changes your attitude which changes your life. After Carl and I had Toby, I became extremely concerned with my outward appearance, about how I looked, my weight, what I wore, and how I thought people saw me. It was all-consuming, and it led me into an eating disorder and depression. Here, I was not like Job at all. That finger, straight up at God. This is your fault. You didn't protect me, you didn't prevent me from falling so far. You abandoned me. Looking back, I can see that I was so focused on the external 
that the internal started to shrivel up and die. My spirit was not nourished and I became a shell. I'm not sure what would have been my outcome if I'd been Job. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Here is a promise of strength and vitality to the weak and weary. It's a promise to those who trust and hope in the Lord. When our trust is not in God, we worry. And worry leads to depression and anxiety, which leads to us taking matters into our own hands. Rarely do we give God the time or the freedom to fix things for us. So in times of trial, we worry. We try to fix things ourselves. We can become bitter, believing that God has abandoned us, that he loves others more than us, which leads us to lose hope. We actively rebel and go against God, angry at what we believe others have that we do not, or we become apathetic, become quiet, our hope is gone. We don't believe things can be different and we have no expectation of God. So how do we find hope? We wait expectantly. We need to be honest with God about our true location before we can move out of that place. The road to freedom comes from allowing God to see everything, our deepest, most intimate parts, which takes courage and bravery. And we fear intimacy because it means into me see. It means being unzipped, naked and vulnerable. One of the devil's best methods of lies is shame. He tells us that by giving into temptation, getting angry, suffering with depression, that we failed and that we brought shame not only on ourselves but on those we love. And shame binds us. It tells us we cannot reveal our weaknesses to those around us and stops us stepping into freedom with God. I have come to realize that my healing and freedom and wholeness, which is still a work in progress, may be the key to unlocking freedom for somebody else. When we first moved to St Andrews in Burgess Hill, I was coming out the other side of my eating disorder. I was on medication for depression, and my biggest fear was being exposed for the terrible example of a vicar's wife I believed myself to be. I was so concerned with making the perfect impression and desperately wanting to come across as confident. And I questioned how I could form honest friendships while wanting to hide such a massive part of myself. There, like now, I would not have put myself in front of you all. But clearly God and Carl have other ideas. And Jesus is our example. Before his crucifixion, he reaches out to his friends. Our human, natural reaction to pain, fear, anxiety and depression is to isolate ourselves. And I was very good at this. I shut my friends out, I was deceitful with Carl, and I hid myself away from my children. Friends are essential, but they cannot be there all the time. God is. So I want to ask you, who supports you in your faith? And who do you support and encourage and invest in? God uses others to draw us closer to him. And we need to encourage each other, not wait for somebody better equipped. So if you're not in some sort of prayer or accountability group, I urge you to join one. Isaiah 43.2 warns us that tough times will come. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, 
they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And for us as a family, that has been true. We went through an extremely tough season, and while I would not wish for it to be repeated, I do see how God is bringing good from it. As Christians, we're not promised immunity from suffering, but we are promised a saviour who comes to be with us and who can bring good out of the worst circumstance. We must view our circumstances through the window of God's love rather than viewing God's love through the window of our circumstance. Storms were no surprise to God, to Jesus. He could literally sleep through them. He expected trouble to come without reading it as a sign of God's disfavour. Difficulties do not mean we are abandoned. Even when we cannot see the Lord, he can see us. Jesus was secure in his identity, which enabled him to live life in step with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3:17 says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was loved by the Father before his ministry. His identity was in the Father, not in what he did or achieved. When we, have, when we are in this storm, we have a choice, and that is belief and faith. People can ask us, where is your God? And we can confidently reply, in the pit alongside me. But in order to believe, sometimes we have to let go of other things, which can be hard to do, as our struggles can become a part of us. If I am not, who am I? This was true for me. I had labelled myself as a bulimic, and if I wasn't that any longer, who was I? Or even worse, would I just fall apart? Sometimes we forget who lives within us. We have the power and the presence of God. And when you feel like you are slipping, falling, lost, distressed, hold on to the truth that God is with you, for you and in you. God wants to meet us in the place we're already in. We need to know that we are not alone in our struggles and that it's the grace of God which sets us free to be loved as we are. God doesn't promise us an easy life. He promises the narrow road. He doesn't always move our mountains. Sometimes he defines us by them. He teaches us something through them. Some mountains aren't meant to be climbed alone, and it would be extremely dangerous to try to do so. We need to stand alongside each other and encourage one another daily. It's the importance of coming together as a church family. Nikki Gumbel said, Church is not an organisation that you join. It's a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you find healing. He also used the acronym FRIENDS. Friends forgive you, they respect you, they inspire you, they encourage you, they nourish you, defend you and support you. That's the kind of friend that I want to be and to have. Sometimes God wants to do something through you and not for you. God is more interested in relationship with you than he is in your comfort. And we have to hold on to the truth that God is good, even when our situation isn't. God will turn it to good. Whatever we face, God is still sovereign. A pearl is a beautiful example of God 
turning something bad into something good. When sand gets into an oyster, it produces nacre, which coats the sand, and over time, a pearl is formed. We need to have biblical hope, which is a strong sense of certainty about what is coming because God himself has promised it. Humans are by very nature hoping creatures. We live largely on it and in our anticipations, things that we know are coming and look forward to. If the light of hope goes out, life shrinks to mere existence, something far less than life was meant to be. God never abandons. He provides and he brings hopes into the parts of life filled with despair. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Everyone faces tragedy and loss at some point. But are you going to face it with God or without him? If we place our hand in his, God will hold on even when we struggle to hold on to him. What do we pray during times of hardship? We need to affirm God's power. You can do anything. We need to express desire. I don't want this pain. And we need to offer trust. Your will, not mine. And we need to reach out to friends. We need to reach out to God. And we need to remember his promises. We need to become promised people. And if we don't know the promises of the Bible, how can we claim them and stamp on stress, fear, anxiety, worry, or depression? Psalm 42 is a psalm filled with despair, difficulty, and pain. The psalmist speaks to God, but he also speaks truth to himself. And it's okay for us to have that dialogue with God. Trust and doubt. God, I believe you, but help me in my belief. I know you're in this, but I'm struggling to find you. We also need to bring the lies into the light and exchange withdrawal and isolation for communication perfectionism for good enough and hidden feelings for open expression and from that comes the renewing of our minds God exchanges our disappointment for hope our sorrow for joy despair for purpose and doubt for belief we have a part to play the more that we try to control the less Jesus is able to do God requires an act of faith and obedience from us. Kay Warren gives a fantastic quote which says, Joy is a settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I like that she ends about speaking of praising God. When I was in my storm, I felt unable to praise God, mostly because I was blaming him for abandoning me in it. Yet sung worship is not about me or my situation. It's about glorifying and magnifying God. And worship is powerful because it silences the devil. There is a song that I love with a line that says, sometimes you've got to sing your way into the truth. And that's key. Our situation may not change, but your perspective can. Another of my favourite songs is Rend Collective, My Lighthouse. A lighthouse is a welcome sight in stormy waters. It brings a sense of assurance and safety. And even in fog, when the familiar is shrouded from view, their light can still be seen. 
In her book, Chrissy Wimber points out that life goes through seasons. We have summer, when our walk with God feels smooth and easy and life is wonderful and we can see God's fruit in our lives. Then we have winter, when things don't feel so clear. Life seems uncertain and difficult. We all go through seasons and we don't get to pick which season we're in or for how long we remain in it. The important thing is that seasons are important. They shape who we are and while we may not get to choose how long a season lasts, we get to choose how we respond to being in it. So I would like to take a moment and ask you all to close your eyes while Carl starts to play. And I'd just like you to take a moment to be honest, not only with yourselves, but with God, about what season of life you are in. Whether summer and it's all good and there are things to be thankful for, or whether actually you're in a bit of winter and life feels a bit dark and difficult to see. 